If we consider the state of Western society today, we see very clearly that it is in a state of what we could call moral freefall. And in great contrast to more traditional Asian and African cultures, whom traditionally at least we would look down upon as less civilized, as less developed, and yet, and I would say this is by uh, God's providential kindness, they have managed to uphold, and some countries more than others, Uganda for example, uh, standing uh, determined against the inroads of sodomy. But this moral freefall that we're in is the result or the fruit of previous moral and spiritual uh, downgrades and freefall. And ultimately it points back to atheism. And atheism, which is a denial that there is a God, a denial that God rules us, that God has anything to say in our lives. This God that the atheists say doesn't exist and yet they hate him with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. Showing that they don't actually believe what they say that they believe. Because they're not indifferent. But atheism, denying God and that God is a judge of our lives. And that, and that denial which we see throughout society, it's in the church, it's part of our sinful nature still, brethren and sisters. That atheism... I will rule, I will determine. It's contrary to true theism, true believing that Jehovah rules and should rule everyone and every part of his own people's lives. But this atheism that's worked its way through culture has affected uh, many, many citizens of this land and the majority of politicians at the various levels. The formally accepted standards of God have been set to one side because nobody has a, even the remotest fear of God or the remotest fear of God as judge over them. And so there, is, there, is, there are petty sins, there are gross sins that are committed throughout society by the highest politicians. It is true that there has always been uh, corruption in society but not so public not so visible not so as it were in your face as we're coming across uh, these days yes there have been times we go if we want to go past say 150 years ago and there are many times where there has been great wickedness uh, we think of the time of the renaissance when there was much public wickedness the taking of mistresses in, in for example, in, in Italy uh, was, was considered fine even amongst the clergy. And there have been so many other times uh, since then. The age of the Enlightenment was, of course, an age of moral and spiritual darkness uh, with, with, uh, with the gin houses in London and, and other accepted uh, sinfulness. I won't go into too much detail now. But even with the ups and downs, what do we have now? We have these cancers, these spiritual cancers, these moral cancers spreading throughout society. So maybe cancer is not the most uh, catchable disease by any means because it's not a disease, it's a condition of, the own, of your own body. We'll consider it like a, a spiritual leprosy that's just gone from nation to nation. And especially the, 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 
the mollified and rich Western nations. So the society does go up and down. It is not one long downwards trajectory because when the Lord comes with reformation and he comes with um, revival, then that upsets the plans of the devil. And the Lord has done that, not, throughout, not just throughout biblical times as we read about that, but also, as we know, in the New Testament church uh, uh, history after the scriptures were closed and completed and perfected. But we see that again, that the Lord comes and defeating the work of the devil. And so we still are hopeful that the Lord will again come in mercy, in a gracious move of revival and reformation in this country, even though it has turned its back again and again. But this is judgment upon judgment. Where we are today is not judgment suddenly coming. It's judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And we could go back to the 1850s when liberalism, unbelief, doubting the word of God and, and the authority of God and the perfection of the word of God. If you missed the adult Bible class, you can hear that, what our brother was teaching on this morning. It touches on all of those um, topics. But all that unbelief, which then gives room for sin, unbelief is sin, and then the application of that unbelief in so many different ways. We've seen it in divorce, we see it in, we see it in sodomy, we see it in this, uh, the, 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 the whole trans movement even today. But again, these build upon previous sin and previous judgment for sin. So here we are in, in, in this repeated wave of judgment that we have, that unbelief and sin enters either formally into a denomination... Or it comes in, as it were, through the back door, being tolerated by certain members of a congregation, or being pushed, and in society at large. We have this, we have the media, we have big business, big business suddenly being very interested in pushing, in pushing immorality at all levels. So there's an infiltration, there is an activist mentality. And the servants of Satan are very good at this. They're very good at pushing for wickedness and put our own evangelical efforts to a great shame. But there they are. I can't say evangelizing because it's not good news. Misangelizing would be the correct Greek word. A bad message, a false message, a, a message of hate. And there are many activists and on a human level, what is this, of course, as you've rejected God's authority over your life, over your, over your heart, over your thoughts, over your words, over your wallet, over everything that you have? Well, then, therefore, on a human level, what is it? It's, it's, it's to determine a new morality, what suits the sinful nature. So it's you, the world, and we're not that distanced from the world because we share that sinful nature, although there'll be a new nature in those that are born again. But what is it then? It's determined to define, to make up a new morality that is then enslaved to the wickedness of sinful desire. Whatever that sinful desire is, we're not just talking about the realms of, 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 of sexuality, but we're talking about all things which are of the world and are our wickedness, and then de defining a new morality. Oh, this is not only allowed, or I like this and I want this, and therefore I will allow this, 
But because there's a self-righteous aspect to this, it's not just me being tolerated doing this wickedness, whatever it might be, but the whole of society has got to accept it. The whole of society has got to be changed by it. And so 25 years ago or so, when, when the power of the Sodomite was not so great in this country or even elsewhere, you know, people would say, you know, uh, mocking Christianity and mocking other people who have said in the past that the true fall of the Roman Empire was the rise of sodomy. People mocked it. How can giving freedom to, to expression of, of love and intimacy, how could that bring down the fall of a civilization? 25 years later, we see it. We see it. And we know, of course, on a human level, behind that human rebellion and hatred of God's standard and of God being God, there is a spiritual battle, of course. A spiritual battle that is at, at force. It's the devil and his, and his angels, his fallen angels. And what are, they, what are they busy to do? They're busy doing exactly the same as they've ever done. Sowing doubt in the word of God and causing humanity to sin. Why? Why does the devil want you to sin? The devil wants you to sin little sins. He wants you to sin big sins. He wants you to sin private sins because although nobody else in the world may know of them nobody else in the world may see them but God who is your judge sees them because he wants the whole of humanity to fall under God's wrath and curse and be judged by God so sin is not your friend the devil is not your friend but God through the gospel is your friend and God hates sin. And if our great friend hates sin, why would we not hate sin? Big sin, small sin, private sin, repeated sin. If God is your friend in the gospel, if Jesus is your friend and he hates sin, and it's true that even after regeneration, his people continue to sin. And yet the Lord pleads with his children. He pleads with his people not to sin. Not to sin. But he is the goodness of God. He knows the propensity. He knows the nature. He knows the, the tendency in his own born-again people still to sin. But the Lord has this covered. Thanks be to God. He has this covered in the gospel that although we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see that in verse 9 of the previous chapter, but we see that in the first verse of what we see in chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, repairing, referring to the whole of chapter 1 in, in, in the truth of of the incarnation, the, the truth of the witness of the uh, apostles, the truth that when we believe the same gospel that saved the apostles, that where they have fellowship with God and in truth, that we would have fellowship with them in the same truth, the same gospel with the same Father and the same Lord Jesus Christ, and then the same relationship that we are to have with light, with truth, with walking in the light, and the same 
distance we should have and that distance should grow every day of our Christian lives against sinfulness and wickedness and darkness in our own lives, etc. All those things, he says, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Do not sin. He desires that we would understand. Hear the incarnate Lord and he's done all these things. We witness of him and all these other glorious truths and it comes down to this. I don't want you to sin. My little children speaking to us as a sweet apostolic father. My little children. Darlings. I've written all these things and I will write other things. And some things are not always easy because this father is not a spoiling father. There are many words of rebuke that this, this father in the faith, this apostle John will speak to us that are not easy to receive. But he does it as a good parent does. As a good parent gives warnings. As a good parent will not spare the rod. But he has it covered. Not only because that precious blood continues to cleanse, but also expressed the same truth in different terms, that if any man sin, sorry ladies, that means any person, if any person sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So we're considering in this, these six verses the continuing effect of Christ's sacrifice and his continuing pleading for his people. He's praying for you. Believer, believer, the Lord is praying for you, even this morning. No doubt he's praying for a softening of heart. No doubt he is praying that this word of his, that he has given by his spirit to his apostle, would find a home in your heart and would be a seed that wouldn't lie dormant, but that it would be watered by the Holy Ghost, that roots would come forth, that, that shoots would, would come up, and that it would bear fruit pleasing to Jesus, because that is why he has come. Come to a barren land. He's come to husks, and new life has been put into those dead, dry husks, and he wants to see fruit. He deserves fruit. He desires fruit. So the title of this sermon this morning, although we've given half of it already, is Christ pleads for his people. Christ pleads for his people. And firstly, we see as we open up the first verse, that Christ is our advocate. He is our advocate. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ is our advocate. Well, firstly, we see that he pleads for your holiness. And we've touched upon this. He pleads for your holiness, that you would be holy. It's not the only place in the scriptures. Be ye holy as I am holy, the Lord says. And he says that in the Old Testament a few times. He says it in the New Testament. And he's quoting the Old Testament. That holiness is a mark of a true Christian. Not perfection, but a holy desire. A holy desire to be, to be walking as the Lord himself walks. 
to have something of the love for the people of God that Christ does and have a hate for the sin which is against God that Christ does. It is the Christ-likeness that is there and must be there to be found. So again, as I mentioned when we first opened up the epistle of John a few weeks ago now, that the epistle of John, although we can look at other verses, we can look in 1 Corinthians 11 where we're taught to examine ourselves at the Lord's table, we can consider uh, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 where we're told to examine ourselves uh, to see if we are in the faith lest you be uh, reprobate. And we said, well actually John is a, is a, is a whole book that, that speaks of the biblical marks of a true faith. The biblical marks of a true of a true experienced and lived faith. There are many people that have, and there are many denominations, some denominations we know down south, that have all these ideas of, of how and what you're supposed to, how your conversion is supposed to be, and, and, and all these different things that you're supposed to have experienced or know in life uh, to prove that you're really born again. Uh, the Pentecostal movement, certain parts of it at certain times, have said, well, you've got, to be able to, you've got to speak tongues to prove that you are born again. And the Bible says nothing of that. The Bible says, by their fruit you shall know them, and by the fruits and the marks, John goes through in his first first epistle here. And so that's what he's saying again. He's already said it in in, in chapter 1, and he comes out with strong language. He says in in the first chapter, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So he says, if you contradict the word of God in how you live and what you say, you are a liar. No, that is, that is biblical doctrine. Let God be true and every man a liar. It's our propensity, it's our, in our nature to lie. And whom do we lie to? Well, we lie to others, but we also lie to ourselves. And the biggest lie regarding sin is, oh, that, that, that's not that important. Or I can make an excuse for this sin. And that brings us then to chapter 2 and verse 1. I write unto you that you sin not. Because the sin that Christ went to the cross to deal with once and for all should be anathema to you. It should be an accursed thing to you. It should be something that you flee from. And you find it within yourself. You're not to make an excuse for it. Sin not. The apostle says. The Holy Ghost says through the apostle. Jesus says through his spirit because he hates sin he hates your sin so much that he went to the cross and suffered immensely to die for it for the love of Christ sin not sin not so secondly we, so we see that he pleads for your holiness but he pleads also for your sin Because Christ knows how unspiritual every Christian really is. He knows it. He's dealt with the soul. He's dealt with the payment for sin. And yet the sinful nature is still there until death. He knows how carnal we are. He knows your sin. He knows all things. He knows the heart of man. And that's not a good thing. But we see also that he pleads as an advocate before the court of heaven. 
He pleads as an advocate before the court of heaven. What is an advocate? An advocate is a sort of lawyer. A lawyer in the court system. I think you just call them lawyers here. Uh, in the UK there are barristers, there are advocates, there are, there, there are solicitors, there are all different uh, types. But here we have the advocates. And, and, and the advocate, the word advocate is translated here is really talking about somebody who's being called on your behalf. They speak on your behalf. You must have someone who knows the law and will then speak on your behalf before the judge. And this is what Christ does. We, we talk about that finished work on the cross. And that's true and yet he rose again. That's also part of that work. Confirming that the work and the payment that was made was accepted in heaven and he rose again from the dead. And he remained with the disciples for 40 days and then he rose into heaven. And as he, he rose up, it speaks in, in Ephesians that he, and, and that itself is a quote from the Old Testament, that he, he bestowed gifts upon his church. And so these are important truths to understand, but we understand now that the Christ is in heaven. He's in heaven and he sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. And Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, And he ever liveth to make intercession for us. It's something we looked at again. We've looked at before, but let us understand this. That Christ has died for your sin and he has paid for all of your sin if you are in Christ. That there is a perfect payment and a perfect fellowship that you now have with the apostles, with the Lord Jesus, through his work. But he says, but if we sin, and if any man sin, and, and every man does sin, every Christian man, especially sins person, that we have Jesus in heaven who acts as a great advocate for every and each one of you, pleading. And here's the image that we have. We have that image that again you've sinned and your name has come up before the judge of heaven. And it's a wicked sin because all sin is wickedness. All sin is evil. Every single sin the smallest to the biggest are all evil. Sin is what? Any, any lack of conformity unto the word of God, the, word, the, the law of God. It's a lack of conformity or it's a transgression of the law of God. Let's not go into all those details now. But sin is also unbelief. anything that is sinful in thought and word and deed and here we are as Christians and we've sinned against the Lord and the Lord says but if any man sin we have an advocate we we believers have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ and he pleads for you by name pleads for how does he plead well as it says, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. We've made this, this, we've made this point before now, but it's good to repeat these things so we understand that as a twofold intercessory work of Jesus Christ for your behalf, Christian. Yes, he does. He pleads, he pleads before God vocally. 
There must be a verbal. We, we know Christ is a, is a praying saviour. We know that in his work, in his ministry on earth. And so there is certainly that praying that the Lord, he pleads, he says, yeah, but, but, but they're mine, they're my little children, Father. Lord, I have prayed for them, I've paid for them, and I pray for them. But also we have that, that silent pleading that he can just point to his blood. My blood sprinkled on them. My blood purified that soul. And there is no wrath. There is no wrath. And so we don't have to go uh, through our Christian walk uh, bent double when we consider our own many failings and many sins. We can be comforted with this truth that because, because we trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, because we believe the gospel, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He pleads by his blood that speaks better things than Abel's and he, spe- and he pleads with prayer for your soul. Because sin is so terrible and wicked that Jesus Christ has to plead for his people 24 hours a day, every day of the week, pleading But the payment has been made, hallelujah. The payment has been made. But if we would understand that it's not just some court case in the provincial courts, it's not just some federal court or a a high court, the highest court of the land, there's nothing. This is is the high court of heaven itself dealing with your sin. And, And why would you then be so easy about your sin? My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it is upon that truth that, that the end of that verse comes to. It's because Jesus Christ is righteous. He's not coming before the Lord. He's not praying for the, he's not praying for the reprobate. He's not praying uh, for those... He's not praying for the devil. He's praying righteously. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why is he the righteous? Because he lived his life without sin, with absolute purity of desire and thought and word and action in everything that he did. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this righteous blemish-free, spotless Lamb of God was put on that cross and died for the sins of his people. And this still blemish-free and spotless, sinless and unable to sin Savior is there in the heaven making a righteous pleading. Because of my blood, because of my suffering, because of my perfect body sacrificed, broken for them and my blood which was shed, I can plead for them. You see, there is no pleading in heaven for anyone that is not under the blood or will not yet be under the blood. Christ is our advocate. He hasn't forgotten about you, believer. He may have put a heavy cross upon your shoulders, but he has not forgotten about you. In fact, he's pleading for you. He's praying for you. And how wonderful 
is that truth that every petition that the Lord Jesus makes is answered. It is answered. So in his person and in his prayers, we have an advocate with the Father. Secondly, we see that he is our propitiation. He's our advocate and he is our propitiation. So this brings us, this, this, this of course joins on to what we've just read in verse, in verse 1, but here verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. For, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Christ's sacrifice, what does it do? It removes the sin and it removes the guilt and it removes the wrath of God. It's because the sin and the guilt have been removed that therefore the wrath of God is also removed completely. There is nothing against you. There's nothing, there's nothing in your name anymore. There's no, there's no law that you've been broken because the payment for those broken laws has all been paid for. It's all been paid for. Therefore, you are, you are, you are, as you are set free. You're set free from liability because the liability has been undertaken by the Lord Jesus. And he is the propitiation. And that's what propitiation is. Propitiation is a sacrifice that removes anything that's displeasing before God. I mean, it removes everything. This is a legal payment. It's a legal payment. Because as we see in verse 1, that nature is still there that would sin and would desire to sin. But legally before God, all all the fines have been paid for. Every single fine. They've been paid for. There has been, a sacrifice has been brought that pleases God. That's the heart of propitiation. That the pleasing, everything that's, un, that's displeasing, everything that causes the righteous wrath of God to go out against it has been completely removed. There's not even a spot on your copybook anymore. As Christ was spotless as a sacrifice, he means that your copybook has also become spotless. As the blood of Jesus Christ, what does it do? It cleanseth from all sin. And he's cleansed from all sin and therefore there is peace, there is no wrath. That's at the heart of propitiation. But we see here that it says here, not for ours only. What does he mean by ours? Is he talking about about the apostles? Just for the apostles? It could be. Or is he talking about the apostles himself, representing the apostles, and all those that he's writing the letter to? Yes, certainly. But then he goes on to say the whole world. The whole world. What can that mean? There are some in the church with them who would then leap upon this and take it out of context and say, well, Jesus Christ paid for everybody's sins. Well, then the logical argument is why is not everybody saved? Because if Jesus Christ actually paid for everybody's sins as a personal payment for their sins, then everybody is in heaven. And the word of God is found to be a liar. Because not everybody will be saved. That's not what it means. And so an understanding would then be this, well, that must be the extent of the propitiation, that, that Christ Jesus' 
His, his sacrifice is so full because of his purity, because of his divinity, because of his, the purity of his humanity, because of, of his death upon the cross. It must surely therefore mean that it is sufficient to pay for all the sins of everybody who has ever and will ever exist. And that is a way of understanding this text. And there's certainly a truth in that. That the value... Of the, of the sacrifice of Christ, it has an infinite value. Because think, you do still sin, and yet the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, even the sins that we continue to sin until the end of our own lives, until we're called to glory. And so it continues to pay for sin. We're not going to a temple every week or every month and uh, uh, three times a year and, 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 and sacrificing and, uh, and bringing these sacrifices because the sacrifice has been brought, brought once and is sufficient to pay for all sin, which is a glorious truth. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 10 and verse 14. Christ is our propitiation. Yes, the extent, but it could also be this. When the, when, the, when, the, when the New Testament speaks of the world, for God so loved the world, does that mean that there is a love of God to everybody on the earth? Well, we would have to say that the Lord is certainly very kind to many that hate him. Some would say we can't use that word love. Some could say we can use that word love. But again, it's the word world that we're looking at. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But here is the gospel. Here, here is the gospel truth that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So there is not a payment that covers everybody's sins. It's premised upon belief. Those that do believe will not perish but have everlasting life. So there is a world of I would say we could also say this is the future world of those that are propitiated. There will soon be a world full of the redeemed of God. For God so loved that world of his elect, all gathered together for eternity with Jesus Christ on the renewed heavens and earth. So we can understand something of the extent of that payment, but also he's speaking not of this world but of the world uh, to come especially. So the fullness of his propitiation, and secondly, the pr proof of being propitiated, and that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. And verses 4 and 5, when we consider that, uh, it will take us way too long even to consider that uh, this morning. And so we will, we will consider this uh, further this evening as we consider the the future world of the propitiator. And the question comes as we uh, consider this truth. Do you know the propitiation of Christ? Do you know that sweet and full payment that takes away the wrath of God? Because if the wrath of God has been removed, then the, the Bible speaks about the peace that is to be found within our heart. That the peace of God which passeth all understanding, it guards our heart and mind in what? In the name of the propitiatory sacrifice himself. In Jesus, in Christ Jesus. 
a sweet and full payment for every sin. And, it, and to have that understanding of a full payment for all your sin, that the sins have been dealt with, we come back to what he says at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. The mark, the mark, the great mark of the believer, not that they are sinfully per- sinlessly perfect, but that you desire not to sin, that you sin not That your relationship with God has changed at conversion, but also your relationship to sin has changed at conversion. And that continues to change. As you learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind more and more. And you learn to hate and crucify and distance yourself from your own sin more and more. Which is essentially the, the definition in the shorter catechism of what is... The life of a Christian. Although it uses this word, what is sanctification? Because without sanctification, there is no new life in Jesus Christ. And so the short definition that's given here is sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So not of your own efforts? No. And yet we are commanded to put in effort. And this makes the difference between the Christian and the Pharisee. The Pharisee does it by own will and effort And the Christian surrenders to God's grace. So an active obedience, but a submission to the power of God. That's the big difference. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's essentially what what we've just been looking at. Enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And really is, therefore, an ability in sanctification to love Jesus more and more. He who hates sin and gave himself for our sin. May God bless his word and help us as we come back this evening to complete this examination. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, We do thank thee for the sweet and true word that is light. It shines light upon our lives and in the darkness, the dark places of our hearts. It is thy word, and Lord, we do pray for grace to receive thy word. Lord, deal with us where we resist thy word, that we be not found against Christ but submitted unto him. And Lord, where we have been convicted of sin this morning, we pray for grace. We pray for the powerful grace of God. Pray for that work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that that sin would be dealt with, that that sin would be confessed. For if we confess our sins, thou art faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, give us that desire to be cleansed personally of all unrighteousness. We come before thee, submitting ourselves, knowing that it is thy work and it must be done in us by thee and that God will receive all the glory and that we may rejoice in our salvation 
and sanctification. So Lord, hear thou our prayer. For we pray in Christ's name, Amen. We will close our service by singing hymn 137. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. We'll stand to sing these four verses. Remain standing for the benediction, please. the benediction and this sermon we will continue next Lord's Day at morning the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all Amen